twisted Start thinking that I'm strained Dead kids are going to ground Get some heavy rest Now I have to worry About what is worse Or what is best Do it! This is Leanna Padaka with Pueblo Connection. It is Wednesday. I hope everybody is having a wonderful morning. It is beautiful over here. It's sunny, clear skies. I just hope that wind doesn't kick up. And today I've got Diego sitting over here, keeping me company and keeping me on the straight and narrow. And today's guest, I am so glad you all were able to turn tune in because we've got Greg Smith. Good morning, Greg. Hi, Leanne. How are you? How are you? I'm good. It's a thrill to be on your show. Okay. Um, so let me just give you a, a quick introduction. This is Greg Smith. He's an attorney and partner with Hobbs, Strauss, Dean, and Walker. He represents tribes and tribal organizations from his Washington, D.C. office. And he he's a high-ranking official. <laughs> he has a lot, a lot of... Um, you know, he's been doing a lot of great work. He's one of the trustees with the Native American Smithsonian uh, Museum there in Washington, D.C. And also he has a lot of um, awards 
national awards with the National Attorneys Board. So, hello, Greg. I'm so happy to have you. Hi, Leanne. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about the things I love and uh, have worked on. Um, I'm just glad to be on the show and happy to talk about cultural protection and other things that I've worked on. Yes, I am so happy to have you. And speaking of that, I know we've um, had a lot of uh, cultural patrimony issues in the news uh, a couple of, um, about a year ago. And um, I, I know that that's still going on. So um, I'm glad you're here. And I would really like for you to educate uh, myself as well as my listeners on cultural patrimony. Great. I, I am happy to plunge in and, and don't hesitate to interrupt me with any questions. <laughs> okay. But uh, I think as many of your listeners probably know, there are a lot of very sensitive tribal items that are no longer under the control of tribes, are no longer within tribal communities, really going back hundreds of years. Uh, but even items that have disappeared more recently that are, have, perhaps have a ceremonial or historic importance and are really community property, they're not private property the way the sort of European world views things as just belonging to whoever paid the most cash for it. Right? Their significance transcends monetary value. But when they leave tribal communities, it's often to go into the hands of collectors and such who who value these objects for their monetary value and for their beauty, but of course are not the creators and uh, of the objects and um, don't have that spiritual relationship that so many tribal peoples have with these items. So I was fortunate to get involved very intensely in this issue for the Acoma Pueblo uh, maybe six or seven years ago, and you may have read about it in some of your listeners. The uh, Acoma Pueblo became aware of a shield, and everything I'm going to talk about is definitely public information, but they had a traditional shield that was used in certain ceremonies that had been missing for decades, although they remembered it. There were still people who remember the shield, and they remember when it disappeared, and all of a sudden it popped up in an auction house in Paris. Yes, and I remember that. It was all over the news, on uh, Channel 7 News. I remember that, and I actually do remember it quite well because that's about the time I worked with Governor Kurt Riley from the Pueblo of Acoma. Yeah, Governor Riley was a real hero of this story, and then he was su succeeded by Governor Vio, and they both said, no compromise, we're getting the shield back, and we're getting it back on Pueblo terms, not on the auction house's terms. So the shield was identified. Um, the auction house said well, if you want the shield, you can bid on it. And I will say, sometimes tribes make the decision, look, the simplest way to get an item, an item back is to just compete um, and, and acquire them, purchase them back. But often these auction houses, they're starting to understand they need to return some of these objects. In this case, though, the auction house was very resistant mm -hmm. and simply said, buy it, buy it. Well, that turns these sacred objects into commercial objects, Right. And Acoma was not willing to go down that path. <clears throat> yes, I so, remember that. What, yeah. And um, so a multi-year effort followed, and it led to FBI investigations. It was determined that the shield was sent to Paris from New Mexico. And why? Because if the shield had come up for sale in Santa Fe, there would have been a local protest. Mm -hmm. But, of course, it was being sent out of the country, making it much more difficult 
to to uh, oppose. And also, there's a very strong native arts market in Europe, and frankly, in Asia as well. Oh, and really? You can imagine, yeah. Hmm. And if a sensitive object gets over there, very hard to ever get it back. Now, can you can you tell me, Greg? Because I'm sure there's many many ways. But what what are the the main uh, ways of you know finding out if some of these tribes have you know some of their sacred objects uh, you know across the ocean? There are two or three ways. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these auction houses publish catalogs when they're putting things up for auction. And the Association on American Indian Affairs, uh, which is headquartered outside of Washington, every week publishes lists of auctions and links so that tribes and tribal historic preservation and cultural officials can click and go take a look. But that's, of course, only the public sales. Uh, that will show you, though, where a lot of stuff is located. There's also a ton of stuff in museums, mm-hmm. including, including human remains right. and other sensitive items. Uh, that uh, the museums have been reluctant to return, mm-hmm. even though, you know, to our mind, they obviously improperly should be returned to the communities from whence they came <laughs> to be dealt with appropriately. And, right. you know, if there's a real core issue here, mm-hmm. it's helping the world to understand and even creating a paradigm shift here where people just understand that these sensitive objects, the the, the, the people with authority over what should what should happen with these objects are the people who created them, mm-hmm. the native communities themselves. And all these federal laws and exceptions that allow different objects to remain in private hands, th- those are wrong. Um, it should be the tribe that decides if an object is properly belongs with the tribe or the Pueblo. Right. No, I, I agree. I agree. So, so that's, you know, one of the most popular ways, I guess, is to just get a catalog and, and just kind of skim through them to make sure. That's, that's yeah, that's one of the easiest ways. Um, that, at least, you can see what's coming up for sale. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, private collectors don't usually publish lists of what's in their collection, except when they come up for sale. Yeah. And then that, pu- that creates an opportunity. Yeah, you know, a couple, you know, about six or seven years ago, um, that was the same thing that was going on here in New Mexico, where they passed a law about, you know, counterfeit and, and um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fake Indian jewelry and paintings and pottery, and so right. um, it has to stay on that. So I, I'm going to um, presume that that's um, the same thing with the cultural patrimony that we're talking about today. That- oh, you know, it's it's very curious issue you've just raised. So, for instance, the Pueblo of Acoma monitors eBay and other websites like that, uh-huh. and they've watched objects like... Previously, an object would come up, and it might say Acoma Shield, you know, used in cultural ceremony. Now, because of the scrutiny from the Native community, an object comes up, and it will say Shield for commercial sale of southwestern origin. Mm. In other words, the people who are selling these things are trying to disguise a little bit the significance of the objects. It's a play on words. Yeah. (laughs) And sometimes, it's very interesting, sometimes... The, the, you talk to the collectors and dealers, and they have a variety of motivations. Some of them really love these things. Some of them are obsessed with them. Mm-hmm. Some of them, it's just a commercial enterprise. But um, uh, when you talk to them about the significance of the objects, sometimes they say, well, I, I have no idea. Well, how would I know the significance? But, in fact, 
these folks have studied and collected these objects for decades. They actually often know a lot about them. Right. And they know exactly what they have. Mm-hmm. And really, a lot of our work is to appeal to the, to the hearts of these collectors or their, their children. You know, eventually, a lot of these collections, a lot of the collectors are older now, mm-hmm. the major collections, and these pass on to their children. And there is some hope that we're educating a new generation to right. do just what I described before, which is respect tribal views. Mm-hmm. Tribal views should be paramount as to what happens to these objects. No, and, um, yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, so having said that, um, is there anything right now that's pending that's um, being looked at currently? Yes, there is. Uh, there is legislation in the U.S. Congress. It's called the Safeguard Tribal Objects of Patrimony mm-hmm. Act. And that might sound a little awkward, but it's an <laughs> acronym. It's the STOP Act. Oh. And the idea is to stop the exportation of sensitive cultural items. And uh, it would make it, it, it would take a class of objects. If, if, if a collector has an item that's already been obtained illegally, let's say under the Native American Graves Protection Act mm-hmm. or the Antiquities Act or something, and they export it, they will have committed a second federal offense. Oh, and wow. as, a, as a way of figuring out, like you can export things, but you've got to get a, a permit. Mm-hmm. And through that certification process, we'll be able to see what's leaving the country. And, um, you know, tons of stuff is exported that's totally fine. I mean, the entire Native art market today, right. you know, virtually every object, we really want to encourage a Native artist. Right. Uh, it's, these, it's these community objects. Um, right. That, that are very sacred to the, yeah. to the various tribes. Now, I mean, I don't know, with all of this being said, had there been any type of laws before this that just hadn't been implemented? Um, or is this all from ground zero starting up because of the, the sacred shield from Akama? The, the, uh, interestingly enough, there are international treaties to prevent countries or, 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 or criminal networks from plundering one country and, and selling to another, like plundering sites in Greece or the Middle East and mm-hmm. selling to collectors in New York. And there, there are strong prohibitions. And the U.S. has strong laws uh, protecting uh, against people buying stuff from overseas. Mm-hmm. But we don't have the reverse. We don't have strong laws mm-hmm. preventing people from selling Native American cultural patrimony right. out of the country. There, that is where there's a real weakness in the law. And the STOP Act is, is, is the first step in uh, addressing that weakness. And I think part of it is just um, not appreciating, or at least uh, not appreciating that Native American culture and history is just as important as Greek culture and history, as Persian culture and history, and, and so forth. Right. But that's changing, and part of the reason for the law and part of the reason for Akama's multi-year effort to get back this shield mm-hmm. was to start changing people's minds about this. Right. No, I I agree. I agree on that. And, you know, I know that the Bureau of Indian Affairs, their law enforcement, um, they do have a division um, for that cultural patrimony where they here in New Mexico. I, I, I don't know about the um, other branches of uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs, but here in Albuquerque, I know that they do have an officer solely for that. So yeah, say there's some new yeah. construction going on and a crew comes across um, some maybe some pottery, they stop immediately and they call, um, you know, 
the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and this officer goes out and and takes a look and then calls out the governor and, and all the rest of, you know, the officials that may need to be there. Yes, he is really well-known and does an excellent job, and he's Pueblo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe his name is Frank Chavez. Yes, Officer and, Chavez. Um, yeah, and a few years ago, that was sort of part-time for him. The BIA mm-hmm. had defunded its cultural protection unit, but one part of this initiative to advance the STOP Act was also lobbying for more funding for enforcement of, of the cultural property laws that exist, you know, mm-hmm. the NAGPRA that prevent people from digging up graves and things like that. And, uh, and so he is now full-time on this, and the BIA is expanding its training and, I believe, adding other personnel to work on cultural property crimes across the country. Uh, but he has definitely been the lead guy on that and has done a great job. Yes, he has. And I know, again, when I was working with uh, Governor Kurt Riley at the time in the Pueblo of Acoma, he was called upon, you know, uh, a yes. couple of times. So, yes, they do have to know their history and um, and and the laws. So that that's really right. great. Well, you know what, Greg? It's we're going to take a really quick little break. Um, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the cultural patrimony. And then um, I would like to just kind of talk a little bit about um, the Smithsonian uh, Museum. I know we're under the pandemic and we were restricted, but just wanting to see going forward what we could look um, anticipate looking forward to through the museum. Okay, great. All right, we'll talk, we'll talk to you in a little bit.
everybody. Good morning. This is Leanne Apodaca with Pueblo Connection. And if you're just joining me, um, I've got Greg Smith. He's the attorney and partner for Hobbs, Strauss, Dean, and Walker out in Washington, D.C. And he represents a lot of our tribes and tribal organizations across the United States. And and he represents a couple of pueblos here in New Mexico as well. So hi, Greg. Hi, Leanne. <laughs> well, how's the weather out in D.C.? You know, today is a partly cloudy day. It's been unseasonably cold, but we've been happy about that because this is the 17-year cycle for the cicada. We're about to have an enormous number of cicadas come out of the ground, oh. and they are very loud, and uh, I'm sure you'll start reading about it in a week or so. <laughs> and uh, they sleep for 17 years and then emerge, And um, but the ground has to get to 64 degrees before they come out. So, oh, my goodness. Uh, so we're enjoying the cold weather. It's pushing back the cicadas a little bit. What are cicadas? Are they like crickets or something? They are like crickets. They're these oh. little bugs that, um, yeah, that... Um, you know, they emerge, and then for a couple of weeks, they fly around and mate, and then the, 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 the babies go crawl back into the ground and come back 17 years later. I mean, it's, it's a natural cycle here in Washington. You know, we're not completely immune to the natural world. So. Very nice. Very nice. Well, like I said, we've got Greg Smith here um, talking to us today about, um, you know, a couple of things. Number one, cultural patrimony, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about some so, some uh, bills and laws coming down from the Supreme Court and how that's going to affect us. And then we're going to talk about the position that's up for um, election right now um, there in the D.C. area. But before we get to those, I, I want to continue talking about um, the cultural patrimony. I am so sorry. I've only had one cup of coffee, and I'm already tongue-tied this morning. Cultural patrimony. We were talking about that earlier, and um, Greg was just kind of talking about um, the Sacred Shield of Acoma, for example, and how that all happened, and how Acoma, the Pueblo of Acoma, was able to uh, retrieve that. And then I asked him about, you know, what are the, the ways that some of the tribes can kind of be on the lookout um, for, you know, any type of, um, of their uh, indigenous uh religious pieces out there and he had mentioned about a, ca a couple of catalogs actually and then we talked about a position that the Bureau of Indian Affairs has um, to address those types of issues and so um, so Greg I wanted to talk also if we could move down just a little bit and talk about Chaco Canyon because I know that's been mm -hmm. you know at the forefront um, whether it's been at the legislative uh, arena as well as APCG, which is the All Pueblo Council of Governors that we have here in New Mexico. Can you talk about that? No, very happy to. And when you talk about cultural patrimony, cultural patrimony is what, however, tribes define it. Mm -hmm. And it could mean something like the Acoma Shield, but it can also mean a sacred or historic landscape. And Chaco Canyon certainly falls into the latter category for many, many Pueblos and for the Navajo Nation as well. Um, there has been increasing oil and gas development out in Chaco. You can drive out there and you'll go by um, uh, uh, drilling facilities and, of course, roads put in and pipelines and different things. Mm -hmm. And it started to encroach upon the core of Chaco Canyon itself. You know, the whole region, there's sort of a greater mm -hmm. Chaco region, which was a thriving culture, society, and community um, that some seven, eight hundred years ago, um, a, a, 
sort of semi-disappeared, except those same people are descended and evident in all the Pueblo people of, of New Mexico. Right. So they didn't disappear at all. Um, <laughs> And, of course, for the Pueblo people, as explained to me, it's really important to protect Chaco and honor the ancestors and for ceremonial and other reasons. Right. So there has been a real effort to protect Chaco, mm-hmm. but it's a struggle because federal lands are supposed to be multi-use. And what that means is you can, you can go hiking, you can go mountain biking and motocross, and there can be oil and gas development, and native interests need to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. And it can be hard to to accommodate all those different interests. But part of the fight for Chaco is to say, when it's a native uh, interest, mm-hmm. the native position should be the position, right? And for you know thousands of years here, Chaco is sacred. If the native communities say there should not be oil and gas development in Chaco, there should not be oil and gas development in Chaco. Now, not everybody rolls over and accepts that. Right. Uh, and so there's a lot of discussion back and forth. Senator Heinrich brought uh, the um, Interior Secretary under President Trump, uh, Secretary Bernhardt, out to visit Chaco. He had never been there. Mm-hmm. That made a difference. There right. were several Pueblo governors there, Governor Vial from Acoma and others, who talked to Secretary Bernhardt about what it meant. And Bernhardt slowed up development mm-hmm. for a time. But the pressure is still on. The new administration has come in and asked that all of this be re- looked at again. Right. And uh, the All Pueblo Council of Governors and, and various Pueblos, um, Acoma, Santa Clara, and others, have been pushing in Washington for legal protection for Chaco. Because right. it, 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 it itself is sacred. So, um, but it, it involves educating a lot of people who just look out there and see, oh, good oil and glass, mm-hmm. good livestock. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they look at Mount Taylor and they, say a billion, they see a billion dollars worth of uranium. Right. Um, but they don't see the other meanings of Mount Taylor or the Chaco landscape. Right. Um, no, and I, and I agree. And it just, you know, conjures up these conversations that, you know, I have um, a lot with, with various people in that, you know, plain devil's advocate, I guess, if you will, where they'll say, well, you know, you have all of this, you know, beautiful land. Why don't you open it up? Why don't you make it like a national, you know, park? Um, and it, they don't get it. You know, we, yeah. I guess maybe we could, but we have so many people that are so disrespectful to yeah. the land, yeah. to the different structures, you know, and it's not just here in New Mexico, it's all across you know, mm-hmm. because if you really look at it, Grand Canyon—that's a natural—I um, mean, nat- natural, a national <laughs> park as well—and that's on Native American land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how many times have that been? You know, whether it's sprayed, you know, graffiti, whether it's trash, yep. you know, it, it just comes down to a lot of um, variables when you when you think of that and then i know with chaco canyon that was another discussion to have you know that we have a lot of you know non natives um, and some of them really do have that respect and i don't want to you know categorize anybody and, and make it a general statement but i mean you do uh-huh. have some that um, do respect that and and do see the value and the beauty in that and then you just have some people like you just mentioned that just see a dollar sign yeah and and that's and think- unfortunate 
Yeah, and I think really, I mean, our goal is to let tribes decide, mm-hmm. and tribes may decide, look, there, there are certain places out here where it is not a problem for you mm-hmm. to do certain types of development, but there are other places where it absolutely cannot occur, right. and, and it should be the tribes that guide that, that kind of decision-making. But your concerns are very evident over at Bears Ears, mm-hmm. um, where people have gone in and scratched over petroglyphs and stuff, which are right. the cultural writings Mm-hmm. of native peoples from a thousand years ago right. um, precious and and you're right it's sort of yahoos you know to, mm-hmm. to be and um but even yahoos can be educated i mean education is our <laughs> is our is our weapon i don't know here. greg sometimes <laughs> <laughs> we try i have to believe man i have to believe <laughs> now, i don't know we have a few yahoos here in congress and we're working on it with those folks but i I've discovered, I've gone into offices in Congress where I thought this is not going to go well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you eventually, you know, sometimes it doesn't, but sometimes you discover the humanity in the other person. Right. And really, Native issues in Washington are best, go, go, are, are best advanced in a nonpartisan way. Mm-hmm. If you get bogged down in this political thing or that political thing, it, or, or caught up in some larger political agenda, it can really, um, Native issues just get buffeted around. But when it's nonpartisan and it's sort of American culture, mm-hmm. well, everybody in Washington supports American culture. Right. And Native culture needs to be embraced as American culture as well. So it's that kind of thing. Right. I mean, again, if we've got to go back to our history books, we have always been here. We're not going anywhere. Yep. And we, you know, we're just not. And, and we do have to embrace each other's differences um, and uniqueness. And a lot of people don't understand that, like Bears Ears and Chaco Canyon and the Grand Canyon and and other, you know, sacred um, places, that's, you know, as important and as religious to us as, say, the Jewish people going to Israel, you know, to yeah. where their religion, you know, was formed and, and um, to, you know, to Italy, to Rome for the Catholics and go to the, the cathedral, you know, mm-hmm. that's what people don't understand. You know, and um, again, we're not just in, you know, the, the Westerns. You know, we really are here. We really do have um, a livelihood. We really do have a life, you know, and, and we're trying yep. to trick along just like everybody else and, and preserve our culture. Because, mm-hmm. again, Native American culture throughout the United States is, is a huge tourism aspect, mm-hmm. especially here in New Mexico, because we have the, you know, the larger number of tribes here. You know, look at all the states that have Indian names but no Indian tribes. Exactly. Well, there were tribes there, and that's how those states got those names. Mm-hmm. And then through the process of pushing tribes westward and so forth. Mm-hmm. But the native imprint is deep and strong on this country, and it needs to be respected mm-hmm. and, and upheld. Well, you know, um, about two weeks ago, I had Representative Derek Lenti here, um, and we were able to, to visit. And, um, you know, he... We talked about that and and talked about the contribution that just here in New Mexico, what the gaming tribes and pueblos, mm-hmm. you know, contribute to the state coffers. And I don't think people really, the citizens of New Mexico really understand how much money, um, yeah. you know, the casinos, the gaming tribes really actually pay back to the state. And yeah. that's what, you know, we're able to help with scholarship funding, you know, right. and the TIF monies and the capital outlay monies, you know, that help not just tribal communities, but other small communities and rural areas here in New Mexico. 
and most of the jobs mm-hmm. at some of these casinos go to the surrounding non-Indian community. Mm-hmm. So and, some of these people... Uh, it really is a win-win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For, the, for those people who think that natives just take and take, we give back more than you, you would ever know. No, yeah. the notion of take and take is a convenient way to ignore what Native people have given. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's sort of um, racist stereotyping, frankly, right. uh, to make people feel more comfortable who are not Native, that mm-hmm. they're sitting in a house mm-hmm. that was once Native land, you know, and that's that's the true history of the country. Right, and, you know, I again, because I, I talk with my own children about this, you know, we have a history here, you know, just like, you know, the African-Americans, when they talk about their slavery and, and their rights and their, you know, voting rights, we had the same struggles. We just don't, mm-hmm. we just don't talk about it for whatever the reason may be. And I, 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 I don't want that to, to continue on. I think we need to bring out the history of all of those, um, those issues. And then maybe people would understand or at least respect you know, I, 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 your radio program is a perfect example, Leanne, of getting the word out there, getting the rest of the story told. It's what we try to do here in Washington all the time. Is to to the extent that people understand Native history, Native culture, and Native rights better, they almost always become more pro-Native when they get it. Mm-hmm. So that's why I believe so much in education, even though sometimes I'm frustrated. <laughs> I, I agree, Greg. And thank you for those kind words. You know what? It's the top of the hour. So we're going to take a little break. Everybody fill up your coffee mugs, your hot tea mugs, um, and uh, we're going to do some news. And then we're going to um, have a little bit of CCR play. Again, this is for Greg Smith. And Greg, go ahead and grab yourself something hot to drink. And uh, okay. we'll come back in a little bit and visit again. Okay. All right. Great Q102 KNMM Albuquerque 1150 AM and K271 CP Albuquerque 102.1 FM I'm Chris Foster. As expected, Liz Cheney is removed from Republican Party leadership in the House over her repeated public criticism of former President Trump's claims that he really won the election. The Israeli military, meanwhile, has announced its first deaths in these three days of fighting, saying a soldier was killed by an anti-tank missile. Israel's defense minister says his country will continue attacks until, quote, complete and long-term quiet has been achieved. Fox's Chad Pergram, former President Trump, released a statement calling Congresswoman Cheney a bitter, horrible human being. The Palestinian militant group Hamas confirms the death of a commander in an Israeli airstrike. The Israeli military, meanwhile, has announced its first deaths in these three days of fighting, saying a soldier was killed by an anti-tank missile. Israel's defense minister says his country will continue attacks until, quote, complete and long-term quiet has been achieved. Fox's Simon Owen. America's listening to Fox News. Strong east winds this morning will gradually weaken and become southerly this afternoon. Clearing skies today with a high of 75 in Albuquerque and 66 in Santa Fe. Lows will be in the 40s overnight. Thursday will be warmer with a high of 75 in Santa Fe and 81 in Albuquerque. I'm meteorologist Kelly Franson with your KYT Action 7 News forecast for the all-new Q102. Q102. Q102.
This is Leanne Opadaka with Pueblo Connection. And if you're just tuning in, I've got Greg Smith. He's the attorney and partner with Hobbs, Straub, Steen, and Walker out in Washington, D.C. Good morning, Greg. Hi, Leanne. <laughs> if you're just joining us, um, we have been having a really good conversation. Um, I'm so glad that I know you, Greg. I've known you for a little bit <laughs> for now. For years now. Yeah, yes. We go back a little ways. Yes. yes. And so, Greg is one of my smart people that I know. <laughs> so if you all ask me something and I don't know, I've, I have a lot of smart friends that know. <laughs> and Greg would be the first one on my list to call. <laughs> so Greg Smith, he uh, represents tribes and tribal organizations from his office out in Washington, D.C. Um, and he is, I think, what would be higher than a four-star general? He's got a lot of national awards from the National Attorneys Board there as well. Again, you're so smart, Greg. <laughs> I'm so glad we're friends. <laughs> I, I, I'm a better servant than leader, but thank you. <laughs> and he's one of the members of the, um, one of the trustees, I'm sorry, not members, but he's one of the trustees with the Native American Smithsonian uh, Museum out there in Washington, D.C. We've been talking about... Um, a cultural patrimony uh, most of the morning. It's a very, very interesting, I think, uh, subject. Um, and we've, we were trying to wind that down because I've got some other um, things that I want to ask you about and, and if you could educate us there, Greg. But let's just wind down the, the cultural patrimony um, subject that we were just on earlier. And again, I, I thank you for you know making some time to come on and, and talk with me and, and educate my viewers and my, or my listeners and myself um, on the different um, 
you know, things that are going on that are going to affect Native communities, again, not just here in New Mexico, but across the, you know, the United States. And um, when we, we left, we were talking a little bit about Chaco Canyon and other national um you know, parks and, and recreational areas that, you know, um, are sacred to Native Americans. We talked a little bit about the Grand Canyon, uh, Bears Ears, and, um, and how that is a huge religious um, aspect to a lot of the tribes. Um, but before we close with that, I just want to, again, uh, tell my listeners, it's not just here in the United States that we have indigenous people. We have indigenous people all over the world, you know, with Europe being one of them. I know I uh, talked a little bit. My daughter, she's going to be graduating with her bachelor's um, from UNM, University of New Mexico. And um, she's doing her paper on indigenous people. And she picked the Sami tribe. And they are out there in Europe, in Finland, and um, a little bit um, by Russia, kind of like a three-area of the country, I guess, that, that uh, they touch. And they were very indigenous up that way, and their whole main means of survival were, were reindeers. And they were reindeer ranchers, I guess. And um, so, you know, we, we just take a moment and educate yourself. Pick pick some, some continent and, and, and look at their indigenous people. And unfortunately, all of us indigenous people have had the same challenges um, you know, across the board, and some of us struggle more so than others with our with our government. So, um, again, I, I would uh, encourage you know to take that moment, especially now that we're you know kind of confined to our homes, and you want to look at something on Google, you know, with your family, with your kids, you know, even help them to educate them so that we are an accepting people at the end of the day of of differences, and and we have some empathy for um, other people. So, Greg? Yes. I have something to ask you. Okay, I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) The Native American Smithsonian Museum. Yes. That, I have not been there in a couple of years. I was there, actually, when it first opened. That was eons Uh, ago, eons ago. Yes. I was able to go up with um, the delegation from my Pueblo, which is the Pueblo of Laguna. And at that time, it was the late Governor Roland Johnson that I got to, mm-hmm. to roll with up that way. But mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. am going, I'm positive that there's been a lot of changes and new exhibits and, and things of that nature. And I'd like for you to uh, talk to me and my listeners about that. And you know what? I'd really like that to be a destination um, you know, point for um, my listeners when we're able to start to travel again out in D.C.? Uh, well, it, it absolutely should be. Um, you know, the official title of the museum is the National Museum of the American Indian. Mm. And its mandate is to showcase indigenous culture in North and South America. The, the large bulk of its work is with uh, Native communities in the United States. Mm-hmm. But um, it has a broad mandate and it sits right at the base of Capitol Hill, where the U.S. Capitol is located. Uh, you look around, if you stand in front of it, you look around, and every building in every direction is done in a neoclassical Greek-Roman style. And then you turn around <laughs> and look at the Indian Museum, and it's like a weathered uh, New Mexico mesa. You know, it's this curvy, you know, right. colored stone. And right away, 
you know that you're about to walk into a different world <laughs> and a different understanding. And since you've been here, I was there. This I was there the same day that you were, um, mm-hmm. and there were ten or fifteen thousand Native people. And yes. I remember standing outside the metro system, which is our subway system, and people coming up from the metro in full dress regalia, mm-hmm. and it was literally like Native peoples and Native cultures were emerging from the earth. Yes. And now to be seen by America as a whole. And uh, since you were here, the museum has evolved in a lot of ways. Um, uh, you know, it's like, a, it's like a big ship. You have to have a, de- a sort of shakedown cruise. And they brought in <laughs> exhibits that really tell the story of Native history as well as Native culture. And they had a long-running exhibit on treaties mm-hmm. and the trust obligation. And we're able to bring people down from Capitol Hill, members of Congress and their staff. Oh, wow. And they get to see this stuff, and they see history and beautiful objects all woven together. So uh, it's become a very powerful platform for educating. Mm-hmm. That's one of our themes here in this conversation. Yes. Uh, one of the biggest things coming up is um, they have constructed an, a memorial to Native veterans. And it was oh, supposed wow. to be open last November. Uh-huh. But because of COVID, they didn't hold the grand opening. It's completed, and you can visit it. But the official grand opening will be this Veterans Day, this coming November. And I would really encourage your, your listeners, whether they're veterans or not, we all know and are thankful for veterans, mm-hmm. uh, to get out here for the opening uh, of that. Because um, the Native contribution to the defense of this country right. and just the long history you know, within Native communities themselves, even predating this country, you know, is, is um, honored by this memorial, which, again, is right there. You look up, and there's the U.S. Capitol building. Right. Interestingly, there was a big, this, because it's part of the Smithsonian, there are special rules. And when they had the competition to design the memorial, it has to be open to everybody, whether Indian or non-Indian, U.S., mm-hmm. European, wherever. And about 150 different people proposed designs, and they work their way through, and they whittle it down, they whittle it down, and then there's, I think it came down to a final set of six designs, and those were submitted to a, um, a blind panel. The panel did not know who submitted the designs. So they, they could have picked somebody from, um, uh, um, you know, uh, Ireland. <laughs> the design. Spain. <laughs> and, anything was possible. Yeah. And the, the final winner of the design was, I'm blanking on his name, but he, I believe he's, he's from Oklahoma. He's a native from Oklahoma. He was a military guy. He's an wow. artist. You can Google it up very quickly. And he nailed the design. You know, it's hard to design a memorial like this with so many different competing interests and mm-hmm. ideas. And oh, yes. I just thought, wow, they, very easily out of 150, maybe there were five native designers. So it wasn't obvious that the final design would be native. And you want the best design, but it's much more meaningful Right. It's a native design. And the native designer, of course, it kind of proves the native designer gets it, right? Which, mm-hmm. of course, he would. And so it was designed. Uh, it's Harvey something. I'm sorry. I, could, I should be Googling while I'm talking. <laughs> but uh, so it's, no. it's, a, it's a masterwork of, of um, kind of monument design and a very different kind of space. It allows for meditative and reflective uh, moments and allows for leaving, you know, little little tokens and, mm-hmm. and you know the kinds of things. Right. Um, that no, you, you know see. that is really good to know because um, my dad, I just lost him two years ago. Um, mm. He was a Purple Heart recipient and a veteran mm. Um, mm. of the Vietnam War, 
And, wow. you know, um, I, I agree. And, and, and the records show and history shows that, yes, um, by far there is more Native um, population oh, yeah. in the, in the, that serve in the military than any other race. And, and not only that, but also um, second to Native Americans uh, serving in the military are, you know, other like the Spanish and, and um, even some of the Asians, the Asian Americans and, and all of that, um, different cultures that, that serve mm-hmm. for this country. So mm-hmm. my hat's off to all of them. And I believe the architect that you're talking about is Harvey Pratt. That's it exactly, yes. Well, kudos yes. to you there, Mr. Harvey Pratt. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you for designing that for our veterans. That's awesome. So I, you know, so I just got married um, back in November, and um, we're going to have our one-year anniversary come November 7th. So maybe that could be our destination. Come to Washington. Is to come, come to for the opening for the uh, Native American uh, Veterans Mon- um Monument? Um, I'm Native American Veterans Memorial. 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 Yeah. yeah. Please and, do. Please do. Yeah. And, and just to honor my dad <laughs> yes. um, that served for, and that was his career. Military was his career. You know, and having said that really quickly, Greg, I know my listeners have heard this um, a million times, but the whole reasoning for me to be able to um, do this show um, Pueblo Connection is because I was a military brat. I was a Navy brat. My dad was in the Navy, and that was his career. And um, my parents really um, wanted to keep us connected to our our community and our family. Mm-hmm. And for me, growing up, the saddest part was to hear from different people from different tribes saying that they don't go home or they don't participate mm-hmm. because they don't feel you know, uh, connected, they feel, because mm-hmm. they've been gone for so long. And, you know, we're no longer in 1960 or 50 where we were very much on the reservation. We're very mobile now, Yeah. whether it's through education, through our jobs, through marriage, you know. And I just felt like, how could I be a service and, and be able to continue that connection? And, um, you know, Matt Martinez, who's our general manager here, has been so gracious to offer that opportunity to me to be able to do this. And so, again, I just wanted to provide outreach and education, not only to our own Pueblo people here, but to the outside and educate them because there's so many negative connotations um, to Native Americans in general. And so I wanted to be able to educate them to, you know, to show that we are, yes, we may be different, but yet we all have the same struggles as well. And, you know, the outside always wants to come and do business with with tribal communities and vice versa. And how do we do that? And I hope that, you know, my show um, kind of bridges some of those gaps that that we may have. And having people like you on, Greg, oh, my gosh, it does wonders. um, And and it helps people (laughs) to understand as well that the picture is much greater than just here in New Mexico. Yeah. No, well, thank you. It's it's a joy to be on. And sitting here in Washington, kind of the the cauldron of all of our discontents, you realize that America's changing and we've got to figure out a way over mm-hmm. the coming decades and generations to all appreciate each other because uh, otherwise we'll tear ourselves apart. And that would be a great tragedy, of course. Yes, and so unfortunately... shows like this help build those bridges. Well, thank you. And, and again, unfortunately, we, unfortunately, we saw what could happen and, and 
thank goodness it didn't get any worse, but I guess the insurgent mm-hmm. there at mm-hmm. the Capitol, that was just, you know, is that, yeah. that was something that, to open our anger, eyes to. Yeah, and we have to figure out how do we address that anger and that sense of disconnection and mm-hmm. and um, get back, back to loving our neighbors, right? Did just you ever think something like that would happen there, Greg? It, it was stunning. I mean, I was not downtown. I live in the suburbs. Right. Uh, because of COVID, hardly, I'm in my office right now, but it's rare. And uh, it was shocking, and I called my children down, and um, yeah. I was getting calls from family around the country and such. Oh, I'm sure. Um, we think we're so strong and we're so stable, and we think that we have, we have ways for people to talk to each other. It's a marketplace of ideas. Mm-hmm. But what's happened is everybody's gone to their own market. And the two markets are now competing against each other when they should be one big market. Right. And so we saw that um, people are not debating ideas anymore. It's their idea or the highway, mm-hmm. basically, for the rest of us. And, it, you know, all sides have, have some, have, need to take some ownership of this. Mm-hmm. It's a challenge. Right. It's going to be a challenge. But you know what? It, it, it's necessary that we undertake trying to figure out how to make everybody in America feel appreciated mm-hmm. and willing to appreciate everybody else. Right, because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, if we continue down this, this road of my way or the highway, you know, it, it won't do very well for our, our economic structure or our civil structure because then, you know, we'll have the haves and have-nots. There won't be really a middle class. It'll be always one or the other, and that's not really good either, is it? I think the rest of the world looks at this, this um, conflict in the United States and they see an opportunity to seize markets and to seize leadership from the United States. Mm-hmm. And frankly, with the United States, with all its faults, and I'm constantly criticizing the United States <laughs> because of the nature of the work I do, right. I would still rather have the United States help set how the, the general framework for international relations than China or right. Russia. Correct. These are not countries I want to have in charge. No. And they want to take advantage of our division, and they will. Mm-hmm. So I think we're still a strong nation, and I'm not completely discouraged but but this has been a tough period and um to say the least yes and and for all of you that are out there in dc trying to make sense of this craziness and then explain it to us (laughs) (laughs) again my hats are off to you so having said that you know greg i know that there's some um bills that are coming up um there in the supreme court or some laws that are going to be challenged there in the supreme court yeah, you know, people hear Supreme Court, and probably half your listeners are reaching for the dial. No, don't change that dial. <laughs> um, from an attorney standpoint, the Supreme Court is the Super Bowl of law, right. and because almost all of federal, almost all of um, Indian affairs, a lot of Indian affairs is affected by federal law. So every year, the Supreme Court issues one or two decisions that have a big impact mm-hmm. on tribal sovereignty and tribal rights. And the status of tribes, as you know, as viewed from the standpoint of the federal government, right. and um, you know that's something that we're always very nervous about because the federal government, you know, has a very bad history, as we all know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got justices on the Supreme Court, like Justice Clarence Thomas, who has written in his opinions, "I'm not sure tribes even have sovereignty. I think we need to revisit the entire question." Well, those wow. of us who are advocates for tribal sovereignty live in fear <laughs> at that right. moment when they revisit <laughs> the entire question. Right. And um, they tend to only take small bites, and sometimes we win. Um, but uh, it's, it's something where uh, we are very alert. And right now, 
There are two cases in the Supreme Court. I'll give a 30-second summary of each. And then a very important case coming up dealing with the Indian Child Welfare Act. Okay. So one case that was argued in the Supreme Court was Cooley versus United States. Mm-hmm. And this was about tribal authority to search a non-Indian's car on a reservation. If that non-Indian's driving on a state right-of-way, does the tribe have jurisdiction? Mm. And lower courts said no. And, of course, for tribes to maintain safety... Right. on their own lands, they need to have jurisdiction over everybody on their own lands. And there are really different jurisdictional rules for Native people on tribal lands and for non-Native people. Right. But there needs to at least be enough authority over non-Native people to maintain public safety. Right. And so that case is before the Supreme Court. We'll probably see a decision in a month or two, Cooley versus the United States. We had a case argued just two weeks ago um, that dealt with the COVID CARES Act funding there's still, from last year, $500 million in tribal funding that hasn't been distributed because of a dispute as to whether Alaska Native corporations are tribal, are tribal governments or not. Oh, um, my goodness. The Alaska Native corporations do a lot of work with Natives in Alaska, of course, mm-hmm. but they're not tribal governments. Right. And the funding was supposed to go to tribal governments. So uh, it really goes to what is a tribal government? And also, what did Congress intend? Well, and you so know what? While we, de- de- while we debate those, we're going to go for a really quick break, okay, Greg? Sure. And we'll come back, and uh, we'll, we'll look at those two differences Sounds right great. there. All right. Yep. We'll be right back, guys. Want a life insurance policy three times the size of your previous mistakes? Relax and call Big Lou at Term Provider. Big Lou says if you're in your 50s, even a bit porky, a $1 million term life policy should only cost about two to 300 bucks per month. Call Big Lou at 800-529-2856. Remember, Big Lou's like you. He likes trophies, too. For affordable life insurance, call 800-529-2856. It's all about the nose. It's your air filter, the first line of defense against bacteria and viruses. If too many germs get stuck in your nose, guess what? You get sick. That's why it's so important to keep your nose clean, just like washing your hands. Now there's a better way to keep your nose clean and help your body protect itself. It's called Navage Nasal Care. Navage uses powered suction to flush out allergens, mucus, bacteria, and viruses. At Navage.com, CVS, Walgreens, Bed Bath, Target, and Rite Aid. Navage, N-A-V-A-G-E. Take a ride into the country and listen to Cowboy Corner with me, Red Stegall, every Saturday afternoon from 2 to 3 p.m. here on Q102. Hi, everybody. This is Leanne Apodaca with Pueblo Connection, and I'm glad you all are tuning in. If you just got here, I am talking to Greg Smith. He's the attorney and partner for Hobstraw, Dean, and Walker. Their offices are in Washington, D.C., and Greg, he, he works with a lot of our tribes and tribal organizations, not just here in New Mexico, but all across the United States. Hi, Greg. Hi, Leanne. (laughs) How's everything going? Going good. Going good. Good. Well, if you just uh, tuned in and are joining us, we were talking about um, some of the bills and some laws that are going to be right there on the up on front of uh, the Supreme Court uh, for debate and discussion. And um, how is that going to impact our uh, Native communities here in the, not only in New Mexico, but across the United States? And, you know, Greg was talking about um, a case regarding the COVID dollars. So you want to go ahead and and uh, go ahead and review that one again, Greg? Yeah, happy to. It's, it's called Yellen 
which is the name of the Secretary of Treasury, Yellen versus the Confederated Tribes of Chehalis. There are a lot of tribes actually involved in the case. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it boils down to, are Alaskan Native corporations tribal governments or not? Well, on their face, they are obviously not tribal governments. Right. Um, and that's what tribes have said, and they feel like the COVID funding, which tribes lobbied for very intensely, was intended for tribes, uh, as we understand them. Mm-hmm. But the Alaska Native corporations have said, we are the functional equivalent for service delivery in Alaska, mm-hmm. and, and, and uh, we were written into the law, sort of, and therefore we should receive our fair share, which is about a half a billion dollars. Now, um, so... So really quickly, Greg, I may open up a can of worms, and I apologize. Sure, but, okay. <laughs> but, you know, the organization that you're talking about for Alaska Natives, that could kind of be pretty similar to Eight Northern Pueblos uh, it really isn't. Incorporated? No, it really isn't. Eight, or eight Five Northern Sandoval? Is, yeah, th- those are intertribal organizations where okay. tribes have come together. Right, okay. But, this, but the, the Alaska corporations are actually corporations like Intel Corporation, IBM Corporation. So they they're for-profit. Yeah, they're for-profit, okay. specific-purpose entities. Their shareholders are Alaska Natives. Got they it. do a lot of good work. Um, but they're not but, a government. Uh, <laughs> they're not a government. So that really concerned a lot of people because... We fight every day in Washington to protect tribal sovereignty, right. and we don't like seeing slippage and people like Justice Thomas saying, well, you're not, tribes don't really exist, it's a fiction, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, so that case will be decided in the next couple of months. It was argued a few weeks ago, and, um, you know, you could see where it could have an impact if they end up deciding that tribes are not really tribes, tribes are only tribes if, as Congress defines them. They don't have a separate life as a tribe. And we've always said tribes were here before the United States, mm-hmm. and they're here now. Well, if Congress decides what's a tribe, then... We're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it, it gives more power than Congress should have. Well, uh, you know, it's more complicated than that, but it's, that's a big deal. No, and, and I get that. And, you know, for me as a Native American, um, you know, when I listen to a lot of... And this isn't just, you know this certain um, uh, topic, it's it's a lot of topics that Judge Thomas has uh, spoke on. You know, I just, I just really have to wonder where is his, where is his thoughts at? Because what he's saying about Native Americans, and this is my, my personal thought, is if he's saying that about, you know, sovereignty and our trust, you know, um, treaties, then that's kind of like saying that slavery never happened, whether it was with African Americans or Native Americans, because Native Americans were slaves way before the African Americans were slaves. You know, years ago, Leanne, I was talking with a U.S. senator who was you know, didn't know a lot about Indians but was sympathetic to them. Mm-hmm. But he said to me, Greg, Greg, why don't they just want to join the rest of us? Give up the reservations, just join the rest of us. Why didn't that solve the problem? Right. And I very gently <laughs> said to him, because that's not what they want. They were governments. We recognize them as governments. They have sacred lands mm-hmm. and cultural practices. And what you're talking about is what we know as termination in the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. forcing the assimilation, which is very convenient for the dominant society. The way to solve your problem, minority group or Indian tribe, is just assimilate and become like us. Mm-hmm. Well, why? Why is that the right answer? Right. It's 
there's no there's no obvious logic to that except it's to the advantage of the dominant group. So mm-hmm. that's what I think Justice Thomas is like. Why do we continue having all these different entities? You should all become part of the melting pot. Well, that melting pot idea, which is America, is something we're all taught in the fourth and fifth grade. But that was a it's a pleasant narrative, and it's good up to a point. But if you take it to an extreme, you get rid of all cultural difference. You get rid of all recognition of sovereignty. The treaties, you know, get get uh, discarded. I remember watching one treaty argument, and some people were marching and saying, "These why are we bound by these 100-year-old documents? To which the response was, well, the U.S. Constitution is over 200 years old. Mm-hmm. What, should we toss any document more than 100 years old? Right. But it's people thinking about, how do I make you more like me? If right. I even pay attention to you in the first place. Well, so you know... deep questions. Right, and... and- and I appreciate all of that, but again, this just kind of chaps my hide about, again, uh, Judge Thomas, is that he makes those statements. Why don't they just, yep. you know, join join us and assimilate? Okay, well then, mm-hmm. does he not realize by saying that, that he's kind of discounting Black Lives Matter then? Oh, yeah. Why don't they yep. just join us then? Yeah. You no, know? It's the same, same, it, it same just, logic. Yep. It, it just boggles my mind. And again, I guess this is why we continue to have strife amongst, yeah. you know, all of us. Again, we can't point out, okay, yes, we are different, but yet we all have some of the same challenges moving forward. Yeah. Um, yeah. But before I get any more heated, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What else do you want to talk about with the Supreme Court there, Greg? <laughs> well, let me let me throw out one other case. Again, these things sound obscure, but they have a real-world impact. Okay. Uh, in the Fifth Circuit, which is the middle tier, a middle court, and from there you then go to the Supreme Court, we had a decision a month ago about the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act. Oh. Now, this law is essential. In the 1970s, 95% of Native children were adopted out of Native communities and put with non-Indians. Right. And no doubt, many loving non-Indian families. But the consequence was Native communities, what's your most precious asset? It's your children. Right. And the, and the legal structure, the legal system was removing them and putting them elsewhere because better to go to a, a, a middle-class suburban family than stay among your people. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, tribes objected to that. And the passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act provided that Native children were prioritized to be placed with their own Native families and in their Native communities and so forth. And the law was really successful and has been really successful at preventing this massive outflow of Native children out of their communities and Mm -hmm. out of their families. Well, along the way, there have been some tragic stories of Native children being adopted out and then, then the adoption overturned and the children going back to their communities, and just all a lot of human-level suffering right. for both the child, the Native parents, and the non-Native parents who thought they had adopted a child and so forth. Right, because so, there was a case the, about four years ago, I think, in the yes. news that made national news of, with a little Native the American girl. The Baby Veronica girl. case. Yes, yes, yes. The Baby Veronica case is the mm-hmm. most famous, and there are others as well. Right. Well, now there's another case working its way to the Supreme Court, Brackeen versus uh, Howland. Um, for Deb Holland. It's, it's a suit against the Department of Interior. And the Fifth Circuit in Texas was looking at the question of whether it's even constitutional to have a law about Native children. Because, of course, in this country, we don't have, we have very few laws that are race-based. 
Right. Right. If you had a law that only white people can own housing in this area, that's unconstitutional. If it said only black people can own housing in this area, that would be unconstitutional as well. Uh, there's a test. When is a race-based law unconstitutional? Well, I'm looking right now in my office at four volumes of federal Indian laws. Why aren't they all con- unconstitutional? Because they're not based on the fact that natives are a different race. If race even exists, right? That's another whole question. Right. Well, but and it, doesn't it, it go back to the treaties, though, Greg? We exactly are the only, right. if we want to talk about it, we are the only race that have treaties. Right. It's all about the government-to-government relationship and the treaty relationship and a long course of dealings where Native issues and Native rights were protected because mm-hmm. they were the first peoples here and they had nations and they negotiated things. Right. And now they're protected. And so it's not about race at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but people who are trying to get these laws struck down are constantly claiming it's about race and trying to find a little weak point. Mm-hmm. And so we had a decision in the Fifth Circuit, and the basic structure of the Indian Child Welfare Act was held up as constitutional. But some of its elements, for the first time that I know of in federal Indian law, were held as unconstitutional because they were race-based. We've never had that before with the federal Indian law. And in some, on some of the issues, it was an 8-8. There, there was a special proceeding with 16 judges. There was an 8-8 tie on some of the issues, which hmm. meant the lower court's decision remained in place, and that decision was really bad. Okay, um, but you know what, Greg? I'm just, this yeah. just, again... Um, we are the only, if you want to say race, if you want to, whether it's race-based or not, we are the only race in the whole United States that you have to prove your blood quantity yeah. of what you are. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Diego, has anybody said, can, I, can you show me how much Spanish you are? <laughs> or, or Greg, how much European are you? Yeah. We yeah. are the only ones besides, you know, horses and cattle, yeah, it, and it all stems from the Department of Interior. It, it, it is all part of the federal government imposing a system of control on Native peoples. Mm-hmm. And we, of course, worked very hard to expand and fulfill Native sovereignty, but the elements of, those con- of that control over several hundred years now mm-hmm. are still quite evident, are still there. Yeah. Again, you know, I was asked a couple of months months ago. Uh, it was probably like late late fall last year. A student from UNM wanted to talk to me and ask me questions regarding regarding Native Americans, and so I said, "Sure, be happy to." About three minutes into um, the questions, I quickly found out that all she wanted were yes or no answers. And I was like, okay, there's no such thing as yes or no answers. We are a very complicated, um, you know, population. I told her, because, for example, again, I brought up our our certificate of Indian blood cards. And and she's mixed. She's half Spanish and half African-American. I said, do you have to show your ethnicity? Do you have to show that you're half and half? And of course she got offended and she goes, well, no, because I'm not accept because my, my, my race doesn't accept federal dollars. Mm. And again, she's in her twenties. So sometimes I just wonder, how are we educating our young people? Poorly. 
<laughs> because um, it is a huge, I mean, and, and a lot of her questions were, you know, um, what kind of, um, do you do you lobby when you're at, in Washington, D.C.? Do you do tribes lobby? And, and what's their form of lobbying? And, you know, things like that. Um, and so I was trying to explain to her that. And then she wanted to know what, how did the Certificate of Indian Blood come along? And that's where I had to tell her you know, the story, but she didn't want to hear it. She was like, well, is that like a yes or a no? It's <laughs> mm. like, oh, my goodness. You know, part of the, you know, you, you may know more about the certificate of Indian blood than I, but I can tell you, looking at federal laws that talk about blood quantum, part of the idea was, how do we eliminate Indians? I mm-hmm. mean, first we, you know, first disease, then we shot them, mm-hmm. then we starved them. Well, now we create a blood quantum, and if they become 50% or more non-Indian, they're not, they're then they're not. no longer Indian, mm-hmm. and we have no responsibility for them. It was yet another legal technique to evolve to the point where Indians become non-Indians, mm-hmm. and the federal government has no obligations, notwithstanding all the promises, all the treaties, and all the history. Exactly. Uh, and it also causes strife amongst the tribes, because they yeah. are now having to, to have litigation in tribal council regarding that. I know my Pueblos yeah. have, you know, the Pueblo of Laguna. You know, our enrollment office, you know, anytime that there's a change in enrollment at the federal level, it com- mm-hmm. it trickles down to us. And then we have to restructure and, 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 and look at, okay, now what do we cut our blood quantum down to? And, you know, when you're raised the way we've been raised, you're still, you're still Laguna no matter what. Yeah. And it's sad that, again, federal government has to tell us who we are. And that's essentially what they're telling us, who we are. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's seriously messed up. And, and we spend a lot of our time, at least I and my work as a, a person who my job is to serve mm-hmm. in tribes, how do we navigate this mess mm-hmm. and protect and, and create a, 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 an environment where Native communities can, can prosper without the old paternalism dragging them down right and you know i just again want to commend you greg i just i thank you for everything that you do for all of the tribes across the united states you and your your firm your law firm as well as the other law firms that you know are out there Mm -hmm. doing their due diligence um trying to help educate the out the outsiders as well as educating us as natives of you know keeping us apprised of our rights and how are these going to impact us so that we can make the tribal leaders can make those uh, educated decisions for their people. Thank you. So thank you, Greg. It's meaningful. It's, it's the most meaningful thing I do. Well, thank you. It, 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 it doesn't go unnoticed, let me tell you. We, we, do, we do appreciate a lot of the work that you do, and, and you have done a lot of work here in New Mexico um, with a lot of our governors. And, uh, again, I'm just so grateful to, to not only you know, call you a friend, but to, to be able to say that I know you. So thank you, Greg. Thank Thank you. you. We're going to take a really quick break. Um, And when we come back, Greg, I want you to talk to us about this uh, hot seat (laughs) that everybody's talking about, our special elections there that's going (laughs) to be uh, uh, up for bids. And uh, they'll be packing their bags and headed to Washington, D.C. So when we come back from our our short little break, we're going to go ahead and and, uh, have Greg uh, talk to us about that. All right. Gold Countdown. Listen every Saturday at noon. 
Hey, New Mexico, Santa Fe Motorsports is now an authorized dealer for Zero Motorcycles. Zero Motorcycles were founded by a NASA engineer in Santa Cruz, California, and now Zero is the world leader in electric motorcycles. Charging a Zero Motorcycle is as easy as charging your cell phone. Plug it in anywhere and the cost is low. $100 of electricity can get you about 10,000 miles. Zero offers five different models of street bikes with top speeds of 124 miles per hour and peak torque of 140 pounds. You can't go wrong. And for dual sport, Zero offers four different models with top speeds of 102 miles per hour and fully adjustable suspensions. Test ride a Zero today at Santa Fe Motorsports. Zero motorcycles, no clutch, no gears, no maintenance, just smooth, plentiful power. For directions and to check out the full lineup of Zero Motorcycles, go to SantaFeMotorsports.com. Santa Fe Motorsports, helping you make your neighbors jealous for over 26 years. Hi, everybody. It's me, Leanne Apodaca with Pueblo Connection. I hope everybody's having a great Wednesday today. The weather is beautiful outside and actually no wind. And I've got Diego keeping me on the straight and narrow today. And today my guest is Greg Smith. Hey there, Greg. Hi, Leanne. <laughs> well, if you're just joining us and you're just tuning in, shame on you, because you have missed a, an awesome show. Um, we were talking with Greg Smith. He's the attorney and partner for Hobbs, Strassdean, and Walker out in Washington, D.C. And he works with a lot of our tribal communities and tribal uh, organizations from his D.C. office, and he works with tribes all across the United States. And, you know, Greg has just been breaking down in layman's terms a lot of things that are going out in D.C. Um, yes, we're in a pandemic, but government doesn't stop. So, you know, he's been kind of giving us the 411 on the cultural patrimony that's going on. Um, we, talk, we just got through talking about um, some of the Supreme Court uh, laws and bills that are, uh, you know, on the forefront there and are getting discussed and deliberated on. And, and what does that mean to us? And we talked um, a little bit about the Children, uh, Indian Children Welfare Act, talked a little bit about that. We also talked about, you know, um, the different uh, other litigations that are going on with the tribes as far as where does the federal government lie in all of that with the trust issues and and things of that nature. And um, so now, you know, we're winding it up. We're almost done here, Greg. I can't believe it. It sped by. It really <laughs> sped by. Yeah. So um, I wanted to talk about, you know, the position that Deb Holland once held there for a very short mm -hmm. time before she got appointed as secretary to uh, President Biden's um, mm -hmm. cabinet up there. Um, and that's her seat. And we've got a couple of candidates that are buying for it. Um, what can you tell us about that position, and what does that position mean for us here in New Mexico? Um, well, it's it's very interesting. As you know, the special election is June first, right? And um, it's Mark Moore's versus Melanie Stanbury. I don't know either of them personally, although I've met them mm -hmm. along the way. Um, first, I would say that the New Mexico delegation as a whole is very important in Washington when it comes to advocating for Indian country issues. Mm -hmm. you, you can imagine there are certain states, Oklahoma, the Dakotas, New Mexico, Alaska, where they're very high, uh, there's, there's a high concentration Native population, and those delegations tend to lead the way. And mm -hmm. New Mexico is one of those delegations, and in fact... In this particular presidential administration, New Mexico has an unusually strong hand. 
Um, first, because the Secretary of the Interior, Deb mm-hmm. Holland, is from New Mexico, and of course she's native. Right. But also, you go over and you look at the um, chair of the Indigenous Peoples Subcommittee uh, in the House, and that's headed up by Teresa Leger de Fernandez, who's a New Mexican congresswoman. Yes. And you look at White House staff, and the tribal liaison in the White House is Pawe Rivera, who's New Mexico Pueblin, Pueblo. And um, there are two other Native staffers in the White House. Uh, one is Navajo, and the third is Chickasaw, but yeah. lived for years in New Mexico. Her, her, um, her name's Libby Rodkey Washburn, a fantastic person. And her husband, Kevin Washburn, was the Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs back in the Obama administration. Yes, and he came um, out and visited us a few times as well. Okay, And great. I think yeah. he was also an, a um, professor of uh, law here at UNM, yes. I think, too. he was. He was the dean of the University of New Mexico Law School, and, mm-hmm. and now he's the dean of the Iowa Law School. And he actually was in charge mm-hmm. of the Biden administration transition for the Department of Interior. Nice. And I think... That's one reason why you see a lot of New Mexican-focused <laughs> people over there. But what all of that means is that um, the Native community in New Mexico has a real opportunity to have its voice heard and to really advance um, on behalf of New Mexico Pueblos and, and tribes, but really all tribes nationwide, to advance a really positive policy. So um, it's important, though, that that delegation work together. I mentioned earlier in this call... We native issues move forward best when they're nonpartisan. If they become partisan, they get dragged down by other considerations. Right. Uh, whoever wins that seat, uh, from a from a perspective of somebody who works in Washington, we want somebody who's going to be a champion on native issues and mm-hmm. who's going to listen. Don't have to agree on everything. Sometimes we find that democratic views in certain areas are better um but then in other areas like economic development some mm-hmm. of the republican policies seem to be more helpful right. um with regard to the two actual candidates melanie stanbury actually worked on uh federal budget issues in the obama white house so she definitely comes with a lot of relevant expertise right i noticed though that mark moore was a field representative for congressman stephen schiff Right. who was the congressman for the southern part of New Mexico mm-hmm. and um, was good on Indian issues, as I recall, quite a few years back now. Yes, yes. It's so they been. both have some contact. I don't, know, I don't know their record in recent years in, in New Mexico, but I think my job, whoever wins, will really be to educate and urge them to defend Pueblo interests and, and, and tribal interests. Well, and I uh, hope part but, of that too, Greg, would be that you urge and encourage them to come onto my show and let's talk because I did reach <laughs> out to Melanie. Um, I really wanted her to come on and, and talk about that um, because part of this um, this show is having represent representatives and senators on. Like I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, I had Representative Derek Lenti on and, and they don't have, I mean, it's all across the board here in the state of New Mexico because we talk about voting. And, you know, we, we tell everybody, get out and vote. But honestly, a lot of, you know, a lot of our people, they feel intimidated um, and they feel like, well, I don't really know enough to vote. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. so wrong. Um, I know for me, if you tell me you represent District 42, I have no clue where that's at. <laughs> 
tell me mm -hmm. what county, tell me what cities or, mm -hmm. you know, towns that you represent. That's more meaningful than for you to tell me you represent District 42. And so when I have like Representative uh, Derek Lenti out here, yes, he tells us what district he serves, but he also tells what does that encompass, you know, and then I want them to come on and tell me what are your platforms? What have you accomplished in these last couple of years that you've represented your district? What are your initiatives moving forward for this year and even into next year? And what was what was your take on the legislative session this year? You know what I mean? Yeah, that is the role of media, is and to shine a light on yes. these individuals and what they're doing, and they need to come out of their caves or wherever they are right. and, and face the questions and mm -hmm. get their story out. Right. And uh, no, that's really valuable. And I, and I wanted, you know, and I'm not trying to pick on Melanie, but I did. I, I wanted to reach out to her to have her come on because this platform reaches all of Albuquerque. And that's pretty much where she's going to be yeah. serving is Albuquerque and the well, urban I sector as well as the tribal sector here in Albuquerque. And I don't think a lot of these uh, senators and representatives that when they run for office, that they don't understand the value of native um, government in their yeah, in their campaign. My, my sense is, yeah, my sense is that the, these candidates do, and I would encourage you to try and identify the campaign manager mm -hmm. um, because your program is obviously very valuable. But I can tell you from long years in Washington, there are a reason why they call lobbyists lobby lobbyists. <laughs> we hang out in the lobby <laughs> to catch people who have insane schedules and insane demands. Yeah. And and candidates are being directed by their campaign to run here and run there. Right. So I would I would continue. I don't think there's there's anything other than it, you have to get through the noise around the campaign. True for both candidates. Um, right. No, I would and, love to have them both on before June first. To so if you all are awesome. listening and you know Mark or you know Melanie, encourage them. <laughs> Mm -hmm. to get a hold of us here That's great. at the station. But anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Greg. Continue on. So your job is going to be to encourage them uh, to support um, the Pueblo governments here in yeah, New Mexico? Yeah, absolutely. So just as an example, um, Congresswoman uh, Yvette Harrell uh -huh. is actually an enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. But it's not something she leads with. Um, because she has her own story to tell. Right. But I had breakfast with her last week and, and talked to her about her positions and stuff, mm -hmm. you know, very strong on oil and gas. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for something like Chaco? How do we find a path? Right. right. Not just, I'm right, you're wrong, or I'm on Team A and you're on Team B. No. But actually, we're all Americans, kind of what we've been talking about. And let's find a path where we protect the sacred areas, um, but we don't shut out oil and gas that we obviously need for mm -hmm. our cars. Right. But we have got to be more, well, first of all, we've got to be more respectful of, of tribal interests and so forth. And she was, she was interested and in, in, in listening and active. And, of course, I've, I've dealt a lot with um, Secretary Holland. And mm -hmm. you've got Ben Ray Lujan, who is now on the Senate Indian Affairs Committee, and, right. and Senator Heinrich. They're both super champions of Chaco protection. And, uh, you know, they, they get it. But each time a new person comes along, you have to start a new education process. Oh, yeah. It, and it's, not everybody's with you on everything, for sure. <laughs> no. Um, and I think you need to be creative. And, and again, working across the party lines is key. And yeah. um, you just have to be creative on how you think. And it's not that we as, you know, um, Native Americans don't 
want, you know, economic development and we don't want, you know, any type of economic success, we do. But it's like you said, we have to um, be respectful because, you know, say you found some gas here at the cathedral, underneath the cathedral in Santa Fe, would you want to tear down that cathedral just to no get way. to that gas? Oh, no it's the way. same thing with Chaco Canyon and every happen. other yep. Native That's American right. monument. That's exactly right. So, but, but thank you so, so much. Um, Greg, for for today, I mean, like I said, I can't thank you enough and how much I appreciate you as a person and as a friend. And again, continue to champion us. We, we desperately need you out there helping us. Again, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, and send my regards to your wife and your kiddos. Oh, my goodness. They're probably, so. Aren't they graduating yet? <laughs> or are well, they already graduating? Know, I, I was late to marriage and late to fatherhood. So I have one who's coming home tomorrow from her freshman year in college. <gasps> and then I have uh, high school sophomores triplets. That's what I was going to say. He has yep, triplets. I have, so <laughs> I have a pack of triplets coming This along. man is very, uh, very busy. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you know what, Greg? What song would you like to hear on our way out? You know, you, you pick it, Leanne, and uh, I've, your judgment so far on this program for music <laughs> has been great. So. Okay, well, I will. And again, everybody, thank you for joining me today, and uh, thank you for uh, listening uh, to a wealth of information um, that Greg was able to give us, and some food for thought, you know. And again, I encourage you to get out and and Google some things and, and educate yourself and make it something, you know, fun so that the family can get into this. And that's the only way we're going to get through things is by educating ourselves and, and asking those questions. So everybody, please vaccinate six feet apart, social distance, and wear your mask. We're almost there. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you so, so much, Greg. I appreciate everything. And we will talk thank to you soon. Great. Thank you, Leanne, and thank you to your listeners. Take oh, care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Go ahead and pick us up.